0: Section 2 of The Trial of Oscar Wilde by Anonymous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Trial of Oscar Wilde, Section 2. My object in this preface is not to write the life of Wilde i have only to do with the writer for the man is yet too much alive and his wounds have scarcely ceased bleeding in the presence of still living sorrow crimson tinged respect commands us to stand bareheaded before the scarred face of woe the voice is dumb we should above all endeavour rather to ignore the accidents that thrust themselves into a life and try to discover the great calm soul beautiful in its melancholy which though pained and suffering has never ceased to be nobly inspired to prove that this was true in the case of wilde we may have recourse to some of those who knew him well and who form a great cloud of witnesses testifying to the veracity of the things we have laid down mr arthur simmons A keen and large-minded critic, a friend of Wilde's, and an elegant and forcible writer to boot, in his recent volume Studies in Prose and Verse, characterises Wilde as a poet of attitudes, and we cannot do better than quote a few lines from the fine article which he consecrated to our author.
1: When the Ballad of Reading Gaol was published, he said, it seemed to some people that such a return to, or so startling a first acquaintance with real things, was precisely what was most required to bring into relation, both with life and art, an extraordinary talent so little in relation with matters of common experience, so fantastically alone in a region of intellectual abstractions. In this poem, where a style formed on other lines seems startled at finding itself used for such new purposes we see a great spectacular intellect to which at least pity and terror have come in their own person and no longer as puppets in a play in its sight human life has always been something acted on the stage a comedy in which it is the wise man's part to sit aside and laugh, but in which he may also disdainfully take part, as in a carnival, under any mask. The unbiased, scornful intellect to which humanity has never been a burden comes now to be unable to sit aside and laugh, and. It has worn and looked behind so many masks that there is nothing left desirable in illusion. Having seen, as the artist sees, further than morality, but with so partial an eyesight as to have overlooked it on the way, it has come at length to discover morality in the only way left possible for itself and like most of those who having thought themselves wary have made the adventure of putting thought into action it has had to discover it sorrowfully at its own incalculable expense and now having become so newly acquainted with what is pitiful and what seems most unjust in the arrangement of human affairs, it has gone not unnaturally to an extreme and taken on the one hand humanitarianism, on the other, realism, at more than their just valuation in matters of art. It is that odd instinct of the intellect, the necessity of carrying things to their farthest point of development to be more logical than either life or art, two very wayward and illogical things in which conclusions do not always follow from premises. His intellect was dramatic and the whole man was not so much a personality as an attitude and it was precisely in his attitudes that he was most sincere. They represented his intentions. They stood for the better, unrealized part of himself. Thus, his attitude towards life and towards art was untouched by his conduct. His perfectly just and essentially dignified assertion of the artist's place in the world of thought and the place of beauty in the material world begin in no wise invalidated by his own failure to create pure beauty or to become a quite honest artist. A talent so vividly at work as to be almost genius was incessantly urging him into action, mental action. Realizing as he did that it is possible to be very watchfully cognizant of that quality of our moments as they pass, and so shape them after one's own ideal much more continuously and consciously than most people have ever thought of trying to do. He made for himself many souls, souls of intricate pattern and elaborate color, webbed Into infinite tiny cells, each the home of a strange perfume, perhaps a poison. Every soul had its own secret and was secluded from the soul which had gone before it or was to come after it. And this showman of souls was not always aware that he was juggling with real things, for to him, they were no more than the colored glass balls which the juggler keeps in the air catching them one after another for the most part the souls were content to be playthings now and again they took a malicious revenge and became so real that even the juggler was aware of it but when they became too real he had to go on throwing them into the air and catching them even though the skill of the game had lost its interest for him but as he never lost his self-possession his audience the world did not see the difference
0: thus not wishing to live for himself wilde was surprised into living mainly for others and his ever-present desire to astonish was one of the prime causes that led to his overthrow yet in spite of this what riches of the mind one easily divines him to possess if for a moment we peer beyond the mobile curtain of his paradoxes those who listened to him this modern saint chrysostom on whose lips there was ever an ambiguous smile could not fail to see that he spoke to himself was occupied in translating that which was passing in his mind trying in a sense to ravish his auditors and plunge them even into greater though only ephemeral ravishment whilst ushering them into an absolutely unreal and immaterial kingdom of capricious fantasy and they will remember that he was sometimes astonishingly profound and grave and always charming paradoxical and eloquent his mind constantly dwelt upon the questions of art and aesthetics in intentions he laid down serious problems which in themselves bore every appearance of contradiction and which any attempt to resolve would at the outset appear puerile and ambitious for instance is lying a fundamental principle of art that is to say of every art is it possible for there to be perfect concordance between a finely ordered and pure life and the worship of beauty or are we to consider such a consummation as utterly impossible and chimerical Must there be a permanent and necessary divorce between ethics and aesthetics? Ought we, beneath the flowery mask of a borrowed smile, allow ourselves to be carried away by all the waves of instinct? The art of criticism, is it superior to art? The interpreter, can he be superior to the creator? Must we modify the profound axiom, to understand is to equal, not by reducing it to that other axiom, more profound perhaps, to understand is to achieve, but by modifying it with that which, at the first glance looks at least passingly strange, to understand is to surpass. Such are the questions which Wilde postulated in intentions, and worked out with great audacity, but with no higher object than to win admiration, and all this with the indifferent suppleness of a conjurer of words. Intentions is a study of artificial genius, culture, and instinct, and, for this reason, it forms a most curious production. In itself it can hardly be termed a magistral work, inasmuch as all the theories enunciated in it are, at least twenty years old and appear to us today quite worn out and decrepit as much may be said also for the theories put forward by our young contemporaneous artists who undertake to discuss all things in heaven and earth and whose vapourings on life nature social art and other things especially other things are no more guaranteed against mortality than the doctrines above specified let them remember in reading wilde's work that their aesthetical doctrines will soon become as antiquated and that it is no bid for lasting fame to write flashy novels pretty verses high-flown or realistic dramas, pessimistic or optimistic plays, imbued with Schopenhauerian and Nietzschean principles, since the crying need of the time is for sincere work. All the doctrines ever invented are mere tittle-tattle, only fit to amuse brainless ladies wanting in beauty, or minds stricken with positive sterility. It is not inexact that in intentions one meets with a profound truth now and again, but the dressing of it is so paradoxical that we run a risk of misinterpreting all that may animate it of genuine fitness and sincerity. Wilde may truly be denominated the last representative of that English art of the 19th century, which, beginning with Shelley, continuing with the Pre-Raphaelites and culminating with the American painter Whistler, endeavours purposely to set forth an ideal and elegant expression of the world. The mistake of these men lies in the belief that art was made for life, whereas it is, as a matter of fact, quite the contrary. Life has no other value except as subject matter for poet and painter these are eccentric theories certainly but then what on earth does it matter about theories do not they serve the great artist to make his genius more puissant and enable him to concentrate all his forces in the same direction by uniting instead of scattering them with or in spite of his theories shelley wrote his poems and whistler painted his pictures If their aesthetic basis was bad, one, at least, cannot pretend that it was dangerous, since it enabled them to accomplish their masterpieces. Wilde, unfortunately, was an aesthete before he was a poet, and produced his works somewhat in the spirit of bravado. He had been told that he could not create aught of good. The reply, triumphant and crushing, Was the picture of dorian gray he is a literary problem and in considering him we are struck with the unwarranted corruption by his acquaintances of a fine artistic sensibility the fashionable drawing rooms of the west end brought about his downfall or rather and it amounts to the same thing his frank and undisguised desire to please and to dazzle them proved his undoing. Possibly the same misfortune would have overtaken Merimee, had it not been for his lofty and vigorous intelligence. As it was, he lost more than once, most precious time, in composing Chambre bluet when he was undoubtedly capable of producing another Columba, and other variations of Vase's Etrusque. With all this, let us be thoroughly just, intentions is far from containing anything but mere paradoxes those that we find there are at any rate of very diverse kinds some are pure verbal amusements and may be thrust aside after a moment's attention that they snatched from our surprise others belong to a nobler family of ideas and awaken in us the lasting and fecund astonishment of the paradox which is born sound and healthy because it concerns a new truth into the mental landscape these paradoxes introduce that sudden change of perspective which forces the mind to rise or to descend and thus causes us to discover other horizons what a grievous error would it be on our part not to feel something of that immense and exhaustive love of beauty which haunted the soul of wilde until the bitter end however artificial his work may appear at the first glance there is still sufficient left of the man which was incomparable we instinctively feel that he belonged to the chosen race of those upon whom the spirit of the hour had laid his magic wand and who give forth at the cunning touch of the magician some of the finest notes of which our stunted human nature is capable men thus endowed enjoy the rare privilege of being unable to proffer a single word without our perceiving however confusedly the splendid harmony of an almost universal accompaniment of ideas the choir their eyes fixed upon the eyes of the master musician follows his inspired gestures with jealous care and seeks to interpret his every nod and movement none but an artist could have written the admirable pages on shakespeare greek art and other elevated themes that are to be found in the works of oscar wilde more than an artist was he who noted down the suggestive thought that the humility of the matter of a work of art is an element of culture if therefore we hear him exclaim that thought is a sickness we must bear in mind that this is simply an analysis of the phrase
2: we live in a period whose reading is too vast to allow it to become wise and which thinks too much to be beautiful
0: our eyes can no longer penetrate the esoteric meaning of the statues of the olden times beautiful with glorified animality and which have alas become for us little more than the tongue-tied offspring of the inspiring god pan dead beyond all hope of rebirth our brains have become stupefied through the heaviness of the flesh and this perhaps because we have treated the flesh as a slave the worship of the senses wrote wilde has often
2: and with much justice been decried men feeling a natural instinct of terror about passions and sensations that seem stronger than themselves and that they are conscious of sharing with the less highly organised forms of existence but it is probable that the true nature of the senses has never been understood and that they have remained savage and animal merely because the world has sought to starve them into submission or to kill them by pain instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality of which a fine instinct for beauty
0: will be the dominant characteristic in these lines we may perhaps find the key of a certain metamorphosis in the poet's life before kirke that terrible sorceress had passed his way
3: who knows not kirke the daughter of the sun whose charmed cup whoever tasted lost his upright shape and downward fell into a grovelling swine.
0: Milton, Comus, 50-53 The infant king of Rome, we're told, looking out from a window of the Louvre one day at the muddy street where young children were playing, sad in the midst of a perfumed and divinely flattering court, cried out, I too would like to roll myself in that beautiful mud we are inclined to think from a sentimental outlook that wilde also had the same morbid desire but he was worth better things and there were times in his life when serene aspirations moved his heart before he sat down to the festive board of sin he had a pronounced tendency towards the discipulat used to question youths about their studies and their mind showing as much interest in them as a spiritual confessor inebriating himself with their enthusiasm and surrounding himself more and more with a medley of different friends a vigorous pagan ardent intoxicated with souvenirs of antiquity heart-sick of his worldly successes he dreamed perhaps of living over again C'est héroïque jour aux légions pensées. Allez chercher le miel aux lèvres d'un Platon. But this artificiel de l'art was, although he wotted it not, a man who rioted in the good things of life. He sought to inculcate in himself a quiet spirit, which believes itself invulnerable.
2: And when we reach the true culture that is our aim we attain to that perfection of which the saints have dreamed, the perfection of those to whom sin is impossible, not because they make the renunciations of the ascetic, but because they can do everything they wish without hurt to the soul, and can wish for nothing that can do the soul harm, the soul being an entity so divine That it is able to transform into elements of a richer experience, or a finer susceptibility, or a newer mode of thoughts, acts or passions that with the common would be commonplace, or with the uneducated, ignoble, or with the shameful, vile.
0: This passage shows us a state of things very far removed from the old dream of antiquity. He forgot alas the puritanism and sublime discourses of diotome which have been so finely pictured for us by plato to wallow in the orgies of the island of capria before that criminal court where he vainly struggled so as not to appear naked before men we hear him proclaim what he had himself desired and perhaps attained what interpretation asked the judge can you give us of the verse i am the love which dares not tell its name
2: the love referred to replied wilde is that which exists between a man of mature years and a young man the love of david and of jonathan it is the same love that plato made the basis of his philosophy it is that love which is sung in the sonnets of shakespeare and of michelangelo it is a profound spiritual affection as pure as it is perfect it is beautiful pure and noble it is intellectual the love of a man possessing full experience of life and of a young man full of all the joy and all the hope of the future
0: there in that struggle in the midst of thick darkness this must have been the cry of his tormented soul a breath of pure air as he passed a perfumed memory then there came a few arrow flights badly winged which only wounded his own heart he defended himself in an indifferent way according to some people although it must be admitted that he gave the answers that were necessary and becoming and in some cases compelled his judges who were no better than the mouthpieces of the crowd to confess the hatred that the worship of beauty had inspired however strange may have been his attitude
4: that attitude could not have been indifferent to any one those who have been fortunate enough to laugh at the portrait that Rene Boileve has drawn of the asthete in his fine novel the parfum des iles Baromie, would find it difficult to make a mock of the man who accepted with superb disinterestedness torture that he knew beforehand the judges would inevitably inflict upon him although he may not have been a great poet although the pretext of his equivocal mode of living was taken to condemn him we cannot lose sight of the art and of the literary craftsmen that were condemned at the same time with him
3: we know no spectacle so ridiculous as the british public in one of its periodical fits of morality in general Elopements, divorces, and family quarrels pass with little notice. We read the scandal, talk about it for a day, and forget it. But once in six or seven years, our virtue becomes outrageous. We cannot suffer the laws of religion and decency to be violated. We must take a stand against vice, We must teach libertines that the English people appreciate the importance of domestic ties. Accordingly, some unfortunate man, in no respect more depraved than hundreds whose offences have been treated with lenity, is singled out as an expiatory sacrifice. If he has children, they are to be taken from him. If he has a profession, he is to be driven from it he is cut by the higher orders and hissed by the lower he is in truth a sort of whipping boy by whose vicarious agonies all the other transgressors of the same class are it is supposed sufficiently chastised
0: this bitter denunciation of english mock modesty by the brilliant essayist rests upon thoroughly justifiable grounds Once again, in the dolorous history of humanity, the grotesque farce was enacted of chasing forth the scapegoat into the wilderness to bear away the sins of the people. But, in this instance, the unhappy creature was not only laden with the sins of the tribe, a heavier burden still had been added to all the others. The fearful burden of the mad, unreasoned hatred of the sinners. Indeed, he whose share in the general load of sin was the greatest, sought to add more hatred than all the others to the great fardel under which the victim staggered, and, believing himself so much the more innocent that the abjection of the unfortunate wretch was complete, would have been glad had it been in his power to help even the public hangman in the execution of his nefarious task. We have observed that, through some diabolical strain in human nature, the evil joy which creates scandal and gives rise to a man's downfall increases in intensity if the victim happens to be a man of superior rank and talent. on voit au fond des prunelles Hanuse les augures mystérieux de la beauté how great must have been the delighted intoxication of numberless weak minds when they were impelled in the midst of a silence that braver and clearer spirits dared not break to screech out vociferations against art and thought denouncing these as the accomplices of the momentary aberrations of him who erstwhile worshipped at their shrine here in france at least men knew better how to restrain themselves and there were even a few courageous wielders of talented pens who did not hesitate to use their abilities in favour of their anglo-saxon colleague hugues rebelle published in the Mercure de france that defence Oscar wilde the calm and tempered logic of which is still fresh to many minds A number of writers and artists even held a meeting of protestation. But, of course, all this had not the slightest effect on the judicial position of Wilde. It was generally felt that the ferocious outcry raised against the unhappy man, who had been found out, was because that man was a poet, and not so much because he had gone counter to the manners of his time amongst all the mingled shouting and laughter the arguments for and the arguments against the voice of one man was heard stentorian and clear above all the rest that voice belonged to octave mirbeau a puissant master of the french tongue and a brilliant writer and dramatist the following lines of suppressed anger and large-minded charity emanated from his pen
5: A great deal has been heard about the paradoxes of Oscar Wilde upon art, beauty, conscience, and life. Paradoxes they were, it is true, and we know that some let themselves open to the charge of exaggeration and vaulted over the threshold of the forbidden. But after all, what is a paradox if not, for the most part of the time, the exaltation of an idea in a striking and superior form. As soon as an idea overleaps the low level of ordinary popular understanding, having ceased to drag behind it the ignoble stumps gathered in the swamps of middle-class morality, and seeks with strong steadfast wing to attain the lofty heights of philosophy, literature, or art, we at once stigmatize it as a paradox because enable ourselves to follow it into those regions which are inaccessible to us through the weakness of our organs and we make haste to scotch it and put it on the ban by flinging after it curse-laden cries of blame and contempt and yet strange it may seem Progress cannot be made save by way of paradox, whilst much vaunted common sense, the prized virtue of the imbecile, perpetuates the humdrum routine of daily life. The truth is, we refuse to allow anyone to come and outrage our intellectual sluggishness or our morality, ready-made like second-hand clothes in a dealer's shop or the stupid security of our sheepish preconceptions. Look at that, squarely, that was the veritable crime in the minds of those who sat in judgment on Oscar Wilde. They could not forgive him for being a thinker, and a man of superior intellect, and for that self-same reason eminently dangerous to other men. Wilder is young and has a future before him, and he has proved by the strong and charming words which he has already given us, that he can still do much more in the cause of beauty and art. Must we not then admit that it is an abominable thing to risk the killing of something far above all laws and all morality, the spirit of beauty? for the sake of repressing acts which are not really punishable per se for laws change and morality becomes transformed with the transformations of time with the changing of latitude and longitude but beauty remains immaculate and sheds her light far over the centuries that she alone can rescue from obscurity.
0: With these magnificent words of one of the great masters of French prose, we would gladly terminate the present study, but it remains for us to cite the following from the pen of our lately deceased friend, Hugues Rebelle, who possessed not only acumen and erudition, but employed a brilliant style and ready wit in the expression of his thoughts. Will a day ever come,
4: wrote he, when the deeds of men will be no more judged in the name of religion and morality but from the point of view of their social importance when the misdemeanors of a man of wit and of genius or a clever elegant man of fashion shall no longer be judged by the same law as that which condemns a stolid navvy or a deckyard hand far from believing in our much belauded progress i am inclined alas to think that we are really far behind our forefathers in tolerance and above all in the ideas that govern our idea of social equality the downfall of the sentiment of hierarchy seriously compromises the existence of some of the best men amongst us it is not crime merely which is tracked and hounded down but all that strays aside for a moment from everyday habits and customs so and so because he is not like other people inspires aversion even horror on the part of those who take off their hats most respectfully to the successful swindler and whilst the police complacently allow the perpetration in our great cities of robberies and murders they make a raid on the unfortunate bookseller who happens to have stowed away carefully in his back-shop a few illustrations where the high deeds and gestures of venus are too faithfully reproduced these paltry persecutions would only serve to bring a smile to our lips were it not that every one is more or less exposed to their arbitrary measures men are far less free to-day than they formerly were because they are too much dominated by a large number of ignorant and groundless prejudices. Ferocious jailers fetter and imprison their minds for their greater overthrow. No longer do they believe in God, whilst giving implicit faith to vain science which, making small account of the great diversity of character and temperament amongst human beings, holds up for unique example a healthy and virtuous individual who never had any real existence except in the imagination of fools, and whilst no longer following any of the old religions they submit themselves with equanimity to the condemnation of so-called human justice which more often than not is radically venal and impresses them far more than did in olden times the excommunicating bulls of popes who had usurped the authority of god
0: as for the sentence of hard labour passed upon wilde a description would fail to convey to the inexperienced reader a full idea of its barbarous severity sir edward clarke the counsel for the defence gave substantially the following reply to the representative of a paris newspaper
6: my opinion is that oscar wilde will work out his sentence he has received the heaviest punishment that it was possible to inflict upon him You cannot possibly form any notion of the extreme severity of hard labour which is implacable in its regime of absorbing and exigent regularity. Oscar Wilde, who wore his hair long like the esthete he was, was obliged to undergo the indignity of having it cut close, and wearing the sackcloth suit bearing the broad arrow mark of the convict, thrust into a small narrow cell with only a bed, or rather a wooden plank in guise of a bed, for all his furniture a bed without a mattress and with a bolster made of wood this talented man was to pass the long weary months of his martyrdom the labour given him to do was absolutely ridiculous for a man of his bent first of all for a certain number of hours he had to sit on a stool in his cell and disentangle and reduce to small quantities ship-rope of enormous size used for docking ocean liners the only instrument allowed him to effect the work being a nail and his own fingers the result of this painful and atrocious penitence was to tear and disfigure his hands beyond all hope. After that he was conducted into a court where he had to displace a certain number of cannonballs, carrying them from one place to another, and arranging them in symmetrical piles. No sooner was this edifying labour terminated than he had himself to undo it all, and carry back the cannonballs one by one to the place from whence he had first taken them. Then, finally, he was made to work the treadmill, which is a harder task than those even that we have endeavoured faintly to describe. Imagine, if you can, an enormous wheel in the interior of which exist cunningly arranged winding steps. Wilde, mounting on one of the steps, would immediately set the wheel in motion by the movement of his feet. Then the steps follow each other under the feet in rapid and regular evolution, thus forcing the legs to a precipitous action, which becomes laborious enervating, and even maddening after a few minutes. But this enervating fatigue and suffering the convict is obliged to overcome, whilst continuing to move his legs for all they are worth, if he would escape being knocked down, caught up, and thrown over by the revolving movement of the wheel. The fantastical exercise lasts a quarter of an hour, and the wretch obliged to indulge in it is allowed five minutes' rest before the silly game recommences." The convict is always kept apart and not allowed to speak even to his gaola, except at certain moments. All correspondence and reading is forbidden, save for the Bible and prayer-book, placed at the head of the wooden plank, which serves him for a bed, and relatives are not admitted to see him excepting at the end of the year. His food consists of meat and black bread, and of course water is allowed. The meal-times take place at fixed hours, for naturally he has to follow a regular regime." in order to accomplish the hard labours that are incumbent upon him. Many of the convicts have been known to say, on coming out of prison, that they would have far more preferred to pass ten years in penal servitude than work out two years of hard labour. The moral suffering men like Oscar Wilde are forced to undergo is probably superior even to their physical distress, and I can only repeat that this labour is the severest which the laws of England impose."
0: wilde endured this martyrdom to the bitter end the only favour allowed him being permission towards the end of the time to read a few books and to write he read dante in his entirety dwelling longer over the poet's description of hell than anything else because here he recognized himself at home before the doors of the jail had been bolted on him He wrote with a pen that had been dipped in colourless ink, letters of tears, sobs, and pains, which were issued to the world only after the unhappy man had winged his flight for another planet. Those letters bear every mark of the deepest sincerity. They are not so much literature as the wail of a broken heart, which had attached itself to the only human affection he believed was still faithful to him it is impossible to treat lightly the passionate anguish which refrains from expressing itself with the same intensity as the sorrows it had suffered stricken with infinite sadness at the utter shipwreck of all hope and the cowardice of the human nature that had brought him to such low a state that he should have conjured up the happy times he had seen decked out in all the charming graces of youth and which smiled back his visage from the limpid mirror of his marvellously artistic intelligence is only perfectly natural and this evocation of happier times took on a new and horribly strange beauty just as the feeblest ray of light stealing through prison walls gains in puissance from the sheer opacity of enveloping darkness I will not stop here to inquire whether he found later the consolation he so much desired, a haven of peace in the friendship of the aristocratic adolescent who had unwittingly caused him to become cast away. It is highly probable that the bitter words which André Gide heard him utter referred to that unfortunate intimacy.
2: No, he does not understand me. He can no longer understand me i repeat to him at each letter we can no more follow together the same path you have yours and it is certainly beautiful and i have mine his path is the path of alcibiade whilst mine henceforth must be that of st francis of assisi
0: his last most important work in prose de profundis which reveals him to us under an entirely different aspect although practically always the same man shows that he is still engrossed with the perpetual love of attitudinizing, dreaming perhaps that in spite of his sorrow and repentance he will be able to take up again and sing although in an humbler tone the pagan hymn that had been strangled in his throat in this connection we cannot help thinking of the gesture of the great talma who whilst he lay a-dying although he knew it not took the pendant skin of his thin neck between his fingers and said to those who stood around here is something which would suit finely to make up a visage for an old tiberius it seems to us that the chief characteristic of wilde's book is not so much its admirable accent as its subtle irony through which there seems to thrill the reply of destiny to the haughty resolutions that he had undertaken it is as though death itself rose up from each page to sneer and chuckle at the master singer and few things are more bitter on the part of this poet who had with his own hands ensepulchred himself as a willing holocaust to the deceitful gods of factitious art then the constant appeals that he made to nature the song no longer rings with the old regal note there is none of the trepidating joy of a whitman or the yielding sweetness of an emerson our ear detects only the melopea of a heart which had been wounded in its innermost recess
2: I tremble with pleasure when I think that on the very day of my leaving prison both the laburnum and the lilac will be blooming in the gardens, and that I shall see the wind stare into restless beauty the swaying gold of the one, and make the other toss the pale purple of its plume, so that all the air shall be Arabia for me.
0: These are the words of a convalescent, of a man newly risen from a bed of sickness anticipating a richer and fuller life unknowing that the uplifted hand of death suspended just above him was destined to strike him down at brief delay in the darkness of his prison cell he dreams of the mysterious herbs that he will find in the realms of nature of the balms that he shall ferret out amongst the plants of the earth and which will bring peace for his anguish and deep-seated joy for the suffering that racked his brain but nature whose sweet rains fall on the unjust and just
2: alike will have clefts in the rocks where i may hide and secret valleys in whose silence i may weep undisturbed she will hang the night with stars so that i may walk abroad in the darkness without stumbling and send the wind over my footprints so that none may track me to my hurt she will cleanse me in great waters and with bitter herbs make me whole
0: in presence of this beautiful passage it is painful to remember how his hopes were fated to be shattered by the cruellest of disappointments and how he was doomed to die in the grey desolation of a poverty haunted room before drawing this notice to a close it were not unfitting to recall another name borne by a poet of wayward genius who likewise wandered astray in a forest of more than dantean darkness because the right way he had for ever lost from view that poet was a poet of france and the voice of his glory and the echo of the songs he chanted resounded with that proud and melodious note of genius which can never weary human ears although this poet led a life which can be compared only to the life of oscar wilde he belonged to an order of mentality which differs too greatly in its essential features to allow the accidents of the career of the two men being used as a basis for comparing them closely together on the intellectual plane verlaine belonged to that race of poets who distinguish themselves by their perfect spontaneity he was a veritable poet of instinct and had heard voices which no other mortal had heard before him on earth in place of the metallic verses of his predecessors the verses that for the most part are spoken by linguistic artists he created a sort of ethereal music a song so sweet and so penetrating that it haunts us eternally like the low passionate whisperings of a lover's voice he gave us more than royal largesse of a wonderful and delicious soul that had no part or lot in time a music that was created for his soul alone and we have willingly forgotten many a haughtier voice for the bewitching strains that this baptized faun played for us with such artless joy on his forest-grown reed the english poet was more complex and perhaps less sheerly human and even his errors have no other origin than the perpetual effort to astonish us whilst above all that which staggers us most and stirs us so profoundly is that these self-same errors which had come into life under such innocent conditions became terribly real in virtue of that imperious law which compels certain minds to render their dreams incarnate. As for his work, however finely polished, however exquisite it may be, and undoubtedly is, we have to confess that it has no power to move our souls into high passion and lofty endeavour. Although it might easily have sufficed to conquer celebrity for more than one ambitious literary craftsman, But we feel, with regard to Wilde, that we had a legitimate right to insist on the accomplishment of far greater things, a more sincere and genuine output, and are so much more dissatisfied because we clearly see the great discord between the man who palpitated with intense life, and the aesthetic dandy whose cleverness overreached itself when he tried to work out that life on admittedly artificial lines this extraordinary divorce between intelligence and will-power was that which gave rise to the striking drama of wilde's career albeit the word drama looks strange and out of place if applied only to the sorrow-filled period that crowned with thorns the latter end of his brilliant existence if it be used for no other reason than to particularise the great catastrophe that took place in the sight of all the world the fact is the man's entire life was one perpetual drama throughout the whole course of his existence he persistently sought after and that with impunity all sorts of excitants that could at last no longer be disguised under the name of experiences and no doubt others more terrible still that fall under no human laws would have come finally to swell the ranks of their forerunners and then had the hand of destiny not arrested him in his course he would have wound up by descending so low that the artistic life of his soul would have been forever extinguished that when all is said and done would have been the veritable the irremediable tragedy fortunately royal intellects such as these can never utterly die and therein consists their greatest chastisement spasmodic movements agitate them revealing beneath their mendacious laughter the secret agony of their souls and we are suddenly called upon to witness the heart-rending spectacle of the slow death-agony of a haughty talented poet a petronius self-poisoned through fear of caesar or a wild whom a vicious and overwrought public had only half assassinated raising his poor glazed eyes towards the marvellous light of truth whose glorious vision we know by the sure voice that comes from the depths he had caught at last Oscar Wilde had desired to live a pagan's free and untrammelled life in twentieth-century England, forgetful of the enormous fact that no longer may we live pagan-wise, for the shadow of the cross has shed a steadily increasing gloom over the conditions that enlivened the joyous existence of olden times. C.G. End of section 2